Well, good evening. It's good to see each of you. We're going to do something a little bit different tonight. I had, um, whenever uh, I raised a topic like I did this morning that might have been new for you or something that you were hearing maybe for the first time, I think it's important if I have the opportunity, and I do tonight, to step back just a little bit and discuss or just talk about some of the concepts uh, that I introduced this morning. And so I'm calling this tonight, I sat down this afternoon, and um, I'm not going to cover everything that I think could possibly be asked on this topic. And so um, when I'm through, instead of a, a normal invitation that we do, uh, I'm going to have a time of Q&A, questions, comments, and things. So if you have a question, whether it's directly related to what I share this evening or, or not, uh, feel free to ask it uh, on this topic that I want to, to do tonight, thinking about church leadership. We don't have a handout. Thinking about church leadership, what the Bible says and what we do. What the Bible says and what we do. When I was um, uh, born into a family, we did not attend church of any sort. Uh, my mother, uh, when she remarried, uh, when I was a little older, married a gentleman in another faith tradition. And so I became part of that. And in that particular church, uh, the way leadership was conducted was there were, there were priests and there was a hierarchy of authority. There was somebody over somebody over somebody over somebody, typically individuals, not a group of, of, of leaders, but individuals who were in charge over increasingly larger realms of authority. And when I became a Christian, when I first came to know Christ personally as my Lord and Savior, I was 17 years old. And one of the things that absolutely blessed me and excited me about the people called Baptists was their claim that everything they did, they did based on God's Word. That any believer with the Holy Spirit, with good dose of common sense and some insight, could take the scripture and understand God's word for themselves. And that doesn't negate the work of teachers or gifted uh, communicators in learning what the scripture says. But that was exciting to me because no longer did I have to take somebody's word for it. Uh, I could read it for myself. And so many times you'll hear me when I give an invitation. I'll say to you, um, if someone's wanting to come to know Christ, we're going to share scripture with you. We're going to let, it, let you read it for yourself. You don't have to take our word for it. You need to know where your authority for truth lies. And for us, as a Baptist group of Christians, we believe our authority for truth lies in God's word, not in one man or a group of men. And so that was exciting to me. But then as I continued to grow in Christ, and as I entered ministry, when God called me, I discovered that there were things that we did by tradition, meaning that it's the way we've always done them, and it uh, was a practical way of dealing with something maybe at one time, and now it's part of the way we do things. And it's been handed down generation after generation. Tradition, uh, pastors have a word for that sometimes, we call them sacred cows. Make gourmet burgers, but anyway. Um, uh, but there are things that we just do, and then when someone challenges 
those things, it sounds like heresy, when in fact they may be bringing the Bible to shed light on that practice or that activity or even on that belief. And, um, and so one of those areas where you'll find great differences from church to church is in this area of how do churches make decisions? Who are the leaders in a particular church? There are some people who take the Bible, and as they look at it, they reach the conclusion that the Bible doesn't have anything really definitive to say about church leadership. For example, um, he's dead now, but a theologian, scholar named George Eldon Ladd, and I, I love what he says about a lot of things, but, um, but in this particular case, he said, quote, and it's on the screen, it appears likely that there was no normative pattern of church government in the apostolic age, and that the organizational structure of the church is no essential element in the theology of the church. In other words, it doesn't matter. And I disagree. I disagree with that statement. And, um, and so what I want to do is just slow down a little bit, because I said some things this morning, and um, and I want us to do a word study, just as one big classroom tonight. I want us to do a word study. I want us to look at those three words, pastor, overseer, or bishop, and elder. And there it is on the screen. And um, like I said, I jotted this down this afternoon kind of hurriedly, some of it from memory. So there's, there's possibility of mistakes with my memory. It gets uh, broken sometimes. But there are three main words for describing church leadership in the New Testament. These aren't the only words. There's one or two others. Um, but pastor is the first word. The basic meaning of pastor is to shepherd. That's the main idea. And everything in the imagery of what it means to be a pastor is, is captured um, with the visual of shepherding. A shepherd with sheep. So leading, feeding, protecting is caught up in that word. And I've got two rows there underneath. The number of times it's used as a noun, and why is that significant? Uh, because it's only used as a noun one time. We use pastor as a noun all the time. We talk about, you know, pastor so-and-so. We use it as a title, uh, pastor so-and-so. Um, we use it as a noun to describe the, um, the shepherding leaders of the church. Our, myself and our pastoral staff, we call them the pastors of the church. And um, uh, so there's one place on the New Testament that uses it that way. It's Ephesians 4.11. It talks about God giving certain called, gifted uh, people to the church. And one of those are pastor teachers. Pastor teachers. It's a hyphenated word, even in the original language. The words go together. And it really points to one of the primary tasks of a pastor, and that is teaching or feeding the flock. This is the only place where pastor occurs as a noun the way we use it in the Bible. Everywhere else it's used as a verb, and in fact it's only used two other times as a verb, and that's in Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5. So altogether the word pastor is used as a noun or a verb three times in the New Testament. How many times do we use it today? Just in the opening. I mean, <laughs> So anyway, food for thought. The second word that appears in the Bible is used as a noun more frequently. It's the word overseer. And because from the early centuries of the church right up to the Reformation, there was a certain kind of church government, we'll talk about it in a moment, called Episcopal church government that involved bishops, that when translators came to this word, they said, oh, that's a bishop. 
But the word literally is overseer, and it refers to a, a leader who has oversight responsibility for a group of people. And so this word overseer is there, and sometimes it's translated bishop. It's used six times as a noun, uh, as an office, so, but it's never used as a title. There's no Bishop Peter in the New Testament. It's not there. There's no Bishop Dustin. That's definitely not there. It's just not, it's never used as a title. Uh, it's used once as a verb, and it's in the passage we studied this morning in 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Seven times in all. The word elder, the basic meaning is a leader, and as I said this morning, in its normal usage outside of the church, it just refers to someone who's older than you are, your grandfather or your parent or something like that, an elder. But in the context of leadership discussions, it refers to a leader. And, uh, and it has to do with their maturity and their experience and whatever they're leading. And so it's used 18 times this way as a noun. It is never used as a verb. You don't elder the church. You pastor a church, you can oversee a church, but you don't elder a church. And so it's used 18 times as a noun. My conclusion from that is that elders were the basic leadership group uh, in the early New Testament church. Now, as we're going to see as we go far, further in the discussion tonight, that there are other ways of governing the church or a church being led. And so you have many different kinds of churches in terms of church government. Um, I want to make a couple comments before we go further. Um, in, in Acts, after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have the book of Acts. From Acts to the end of the New Testament, from Acts to Revelation, Acts to Maps, however, wherever you stop, okay, uh, deacons appear ten times. Deacons appear ten times. There's no real controversy over who deacons are. There's a lot of question about specifically what they did, and that's another Bible study, but they appear ten times. And, and, and of those ten times, some scholars are not sure they're actually referring to deacons. Elders and references to the role of oversight or shepherding occurs 28 times from the book of Acts through Revelation. Now, there's two really important passages that you need to be aware of on this, on this topic. All three words, pastor, overseer, and elder, occur together in two passages in the Bible. The first one is in Acts chapter 20, and, um, and you'll see that on the screen. Uh, Paul is traveling. Uh, he, is, he needs to, to pump up the church in Ephesus. He kind of started it. Uh, they need encouragement, but he doesn't have time to go to Ephesus. So from where he is on the coast in Miletus, he calls the elders, the Bible says, in the Ephesian church to come. From Miletus, he sent to, the, to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. That's in verse 17. And then as you read further, he tells them a lot of things. He, he rehearses his history with the church, the things he taught them. And then when you come to verse 28, it says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you, and there's our other word, overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And there's our word for pastor. Uh, the word there is a verb for shepherd. Remember, it's only used as a noun in one place, and that's over in Ephesians 4. But here it's a, it's a verb. We shepherd the church. But here, elders and overseers occur together both as nouns, 
And uh, one is, is what they were, they were elders. Overseer is what they did. And that's why when I talk about overseer or pastor, when we're just looking straight up at what the Bible says, elder was the office, pastoring and overseeing is what they did. That was the function of that office, was, um, was oversight and shepherding. And so here, though, elders and overseers clearly are referring to the same person. They're referring to the same group of men. The other passage where all three occur is the one we looked at this morning, 1 Peter 5 and verse 2. And we read it this morning in verse 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort, that's our office, that's our, our church leader group, elders. And then in verse 2 he says, shepherd, that's the word for pastors, shepherd the flock of God was among you, serving as overseers, and this is the only use of overseer as a verb, and, um, and he says, as you shepherd the church, here's what I want you to give particular focus to, guys, when the church is facing persecution, give oversight to the church. And as we saw this morning, that means to watch out for their souls. Now, a couple things I mentioned this morning that, that you have to keep in mind about elders. When Peter wrote his letter, and we also saw that when James wrote his letter, they were circular letters. They weren't written to one church. They were written to dozens and dozens of churches. And they were passed around and read in all of those churches. And so when he says to the elders who are among you, he assumes that those churches in Asia Minor, and James assumes that all the churches that his letters read to in the Roman world have a group of men called elders. Now, elder and overseer describe the same person. This is the next thing I want you to see. Elder and overseer describe the same person. We've seen it in Acts 20, but it's really clear in Titus 1, uh, verses 5 to 7. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, this is Paul talking to Titus, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So he would go through, start a church, and he didn't leave a church until he left them with a group of men called elders who were to take care of them spiritually. And then he gives the qualifications for the elders. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, and then look at this in verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless. As a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, and so forth. And so in this passage, he talks about elders, appoint elders in every city. And then two verses later, he says, because they are bishops, they are overseers in their function. How can they watch out for the souls of others if they can't even keep up with their own soul? And watch out for their own soul. And so he's very concerned about the character or the maturity of these men. I mentioned this morning that in Acts 14, verse 23, that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every city. And so what Paul tells Titus to do is, in fact, what he himself did as he traveled from place to place. He'd start a church, teach the gospel, get people to a certain level of maturity, and then look at the group and say, this one is mature in Christ, this one's mature in Christ, this one's mature in Christ, you guys are to take care of this group. Um, it's also interesting that Titus, Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, give the qualifications for an elder or an overseer. They are virtually identical, and deacons have almost the same set of qualifications. 
It's all about who a man is. And, you know, in the church, we are concerned with sometimes our, our programs and, and our methods and how we get things done. But very clearly in the New Testament, a lot of what was going to be accomplished in the church and helping people who are not mature become mature was going to hinge on not a certain methodology, but on a certain kind of man. E.M. Bounds, a Baptist preacher from another time, said the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. And that was obviously the methodology of the New Testament. Um, I think the last thing before we move from this uh, word study is this simple observation. Elders never served alone. Elders never served alone. The words for elder or overseer, when they are referred to, are always plural. Overseers or elders. There's a group involved. And uh, I believe that that is significant. The only time where that doesn't occur is when they're describing the qualifications for a elder or a overseer. So think with me for just a moment. Um, elders always appear to be leading the church as a group. What might be the advantages of having a group of men versus a solo leader in the early church? What might be the advantages of having a group who are watching souls as opposed to an individual who's watching souls? Think about it. I jotted down two or three things. I think one, it, uh, it surely protects each guy from pride. It takes humility and cooperation for a group of men to work together. And and I believe there's some built-in uh, protections when there's a group as opposed to an individual. All of us have seen the tragedy of when leadership uh, is abused and when somebody gets drunk with power and, um, and begins to use the ministry for their own benefit. Humility and cooperation. I think another advantage of a group of men is that there's a better representation of gifts. Years ago, when Rick Warren published a book called The Purpose Driven Church, one of his arguments for recognizing the various purposes in the Bible for the church and making sure that each of those purposes was given careful attention uh, in, in um, administering or, or looking over the church is that when you have an individual solo pastor, the church, after a while, tends to only be focused on the things that he cares about. And the things that that one individual care about, cares about are often colored by his own spiritual gifts and by his individual calling. For example, uh, one pastor I worked with one time, and he's a dear brother to me, he's a dear friend. But one pastor I worked with one time, uh, he was all about evangelism. All about evangelism. Now, is there anything wrong with being all about evangelism? No, we want to see people come to Christ, right? We want to share the gospel. We want to spread the gospel. But what is the Great Commission? Is it to do evangelism or make disciples? And so it's not enough to do evangelism. One day, uh, we were in a copy room. We were having a conversation. I said, you know what? I said, um, you know what your, your issue is? And he said, what? 
and we were good friends. I said, you know what? You, you are guilty of gift projection. Gift projection. He said, gift projection? He said, what's that? I said, gift projection is when a pastor has a dominant gift in his life, and that's all he sees in every decision, every program, every ministry in the church. He only sees from the viewpoint of his giftedness, and yours is evangelism. And so everything we do is about evangelism and nothing else. It's not about making disciples. He said, that's gift projection? I said, yes, sir. He said, yep, that's what I do. And he turned around and walked out of the room. <laughs> oh, it was a good moment. Years later, we were riding together somewhere, and he said, he said, do you remember that conversation we had in the coffee room that day? And I said, yes, sir. He said, you were right. You were right. He said, if we had to do over again, we'd do more discipleship. But I believe in a group, you've got guys who are gifted in different ways. And with a group of leaders working together, then all the gifts are involved in the life of the church. I think there's an advantage to having the ability to share burdens together and share responsibility together rather than one man bearing the full responsibility for leading a church. Well, let me, let me step away from the word study for a moment and let's look at reality. And what I mean by reality, let's look at the way the church is today. Are there other forms of church government? Well, in fact, um, there's different ways of doing this, but I'm going to suggest to you tonight there are three major forms of church decision-making. Three major forms of church decision-making. And just about any church that you can think of is going to fall primarily into one of these three groups. Who possesses the highest authority in making decisions in a given church? Well, if they have an Episcopal form of government, it is the bishop. It is the bishop. There's a hierarchy. You have a local minister of some sort. They have different titles. They have a local minister, but over him, there's somebody else. And over them, there's typically somebody else. And you have a bishop who is the final word and say in the process. And this is a very ancient form of church government. It goes back to the early centuries, um, third century, fourth century. You began to see people who saw themselves as bishops. And so there's an Episcopal form of church government. There's a Presbyterian form of decision-making. They use the word elders in the Presbyterian form of government, but typically the elders function as a board for a church. And uh, there's a difference between an elder board and a group of elders who are functioning as a ministering body of church leaders. There's a difference. An elder board is like a corporate board, make decisions, you know, on finances and that kind of thing. That's what boards do. They, you know, how are the numbers? How's the budget? Um, how are the, all those vital signs? But in an um, elder body, as the New Testament describes it, they didn't have buildings and budgets to worry about. They just worried about souls and, um, and whether they were growing in Christ. But in a Presbyterian form of government, you usually have, um, you still can have a solo pastor, but in that local church, you have a group of people who serve as elders of the church. When major decisions have to be made that affect a group of churches in a given region, they will come together. They have different names for it. Um, but all the elders of the various churches will come together. You know, it's kind of like an associational meeting for Baptists, except when these elders come together and they have a synod, 
they have real authority to make decisions that are binding on all the churches in their group. And, um, and so there's a Presbyterian model for government. And then there's a congregational model for church government, which, by the way, is what Baptists have been historically. In a congregational form of government, the members make the decisions. Uh, ultimately, they are the highest authority in that local church. In a congregational model, here's, and here's the reason for that, in a congregational model, the belief is that God speaks to the church through the body. That leaders will cast vision, will point the way, will say, my best understanding is this is what God wants to do, and that God speaks to the church through the body. And, um, and typically what that looks like in a Baptist context is the congregation votes on things. And the smaller the church, the more they vote. Seriously. The larger the church, it's just harder to make decisions about what color the light bulbs should be when you have 300 people voting. But in a smaller church, they make all decisions together. Smaller the church, the more decisions they make together. And so we practice a congregational polity. Now I want to say this before I go further. The gospel can be preached and in fact is being preached in every one of these kinds of churches. The gospel runs hard and fast. Revival can come in any context that we've talked about here. And so don't ever fall uh, victim to the belief that, that God cannot work in a church that doesn't do it like we do it. <laughs> because he can and he does and he has. Um, there's some variations on the congregational model that are, that are happening today in our lifetime. Uh, what we have practiced historically is a single elder form of congregationalism, meaning solo pastor and a congregation, and um, he leads, but the congregation affirms or confirms the, uh, the direction of that single elder. But more and more, what you're seeing, even in Baptist life, is a group of guys, a group of elders, and a congregational model. In fact, I would say many of the new churches that are being started in North America are being started with, with a, a group of elders and a congregational form of church decision-making. Let me share with you, this'll, this will, um, we don't look at it often enough, I'm afraid, but I want to share with you a reading from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's the last version of our statement of our faith as Baptists. It is not binding on any church. It is only a statement that most Baptists subscribe to in Southern Baptist life. It is binding on our institutions uh, that you support through your giving. And so our seminaries and our Baptist schools are required to regard the Baptist faith and message as their standard for what they believe and what they teach. In Article 6 on the church, um, and this should be on the screen, go ahead. Um, it says, a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation. Autonomy means they possess all decisions, the right to make all their own decisions. Nobody outside Wind Baptist Church tells Wind Baptist Church what to do. Uh, Wind Baptist Church is an autonomous, independent Baptist church in that sense. And so, a New Testament church, the Lord Jesus Christ, is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers 
associated by covenant, and that's a group of uh, basic practices that we agree on as a church that we're going to behave ourselves this way, a certain way. How many of y'all have ever seen our covenant? See, that's a tragedy. (laughs) Uh, All of us should be aware of our covenant. Some churches are so serious about it, they put it up on the wall. Have you ever seen that? The smaller church, they put it up on the wall, the church covenant. Uh, They got it from the old Sunday school board, and uh, they put it up there. But it's a covenant, it's an agreement in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. Observing two ordinances of Christ. What are those ordinances that we practice? The two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, that's right. Uh, Exercising, excuse me, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation, listen to this, operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. What does that mean? It means that, that however we make decisions, at the end of the day, they're not our decisions, are they? They're the decisions of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. And so when we practice congregational decision-making, what we are saying is, as a group, we are trying to determine the will of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ using a democratic voting method. And what that means to you as an individual is when you get ready to vote on something as a church, what you're saying is, Lord, how do you want me to vote? Lord, what is your heart on this matter? What is your heart on this decision? And, uh, and that's ultimately what we want to try to secure when we make decisions as a church. What is the will of God? That's why as your pastor, I have a hard time with split votes. I mean, deeply divided votes in a church on a major issue. And um, if that ever happens to us, you're going to see your pastor say, oh, we're not done. You know, sometimes in a, in a typical democratic process, we say majority rules. Okay, 51% wins, 49% loses. And listen, do you think we got a hold of the heart of God with a 51% majority? No, something's wrong. And, uh, and so even in our, our faith statement, we recognize that each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Not to me, not to the deacons, not to the pastors of the church, but to God, to Christ. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons, and so we have chosen to make pastors our primary label for elders. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 list those qualifications. The New Testament also speaks, or speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we believe in a local church that is the body of Christ, but we also believe in a universal church. Everybody that's ever put their trust in Jesus is part of the church of Jesus Christ. Um, Related to what we just read, let me just say that many of the new churches that we are starting, even as Southern Baptists, are practicing a plural form of church leadership. More and more they are adopting um, an elder model. Now that's the new churches. I would also say quickly that few existing churches are embracing the concept. Few established churches are embracing the concept. And by that I mean a church that's been doing it one way for most of their history. It's very rare for them to change and say, no, we're going to go do it a different way. 
Doesn't happen very often. Um, I've seen it multiple times in Arkansas. New seminarian, fresh graduate, ink's not even dry on their diploma. They come to a church and they're so excited about what they've read in the New Testament, what I just shared with you. They're so excited about it. They come to their church, they haven't been there 30 days. And they announce to the church that we're going to establish an elder body of church leaders. An elder body. And people are going, what, what, what? And uh, I call them 90-day wonders because that's about how long they lasted. And uh, I remember one afternoon at the office, I got a call from a lady in another part of Arkansas. She said, will you please help me understand what this business of church elders is about? I said, well, ma'am, I'd be happy to explain to you what the Bible says, but can you tell me why you're asking? She said, well, we got a new pastor. He's been with us two months, and he's already done a whole list of things. He has uh, stopped meeting with the deacons. He stopped giving invitations. He'd done all kinds of things that were kind of popular. <laughs> and, and he was implementing uh, an elder form of church government. 90 days. He didn't make it to the 90-day mark. Um, Few existing churches embrace the concept. Now listen to me. Um, what are the takeaways? Let me give you four, and then I'm going to stop. Okay, I'm going to give these to you quickly. Here, here are just some thoughts I want to leave with you based on this morning and what I've said tonight. First of all, we need, as a church, all of the biblical functions of church leadership, whether we call them by a certain name or not. We need all those biblical functions, all those qualities of a shepherd, all those qualities of an elder. We need all those qualities of an oversight, someone watching out for our souls. We need that in our churches, whether we call them by a particular name, no matter what we call them. Here's a second takeaway, I believe. All authority in a church belongs to Jesus. And so no matter how we govern, we have got to respect the fact that all authority belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. He is the great shepherd. Uh, he is the one in charge, and no individual or group of individuals can replace his leadership over the church. Here's a, here's a third takeaway, and this is really a question to think about. If God raises up and calls men to watch out for your soul, if the Bible's true about that, how should that affect the way you hear a sermon or a Bible study given by a pastor? How should that affect the way? I remember as a staff member, over the years, sitting and listening to pastors. And I, I knew those guys. I knew their good days and their bad days. <laughs> I, I, I saw them at their best, and I, I'm not sure if I saw them at their worst, but it wasn't great. And uh, I knew those men. They were my brothers, and I loved them. But they were also, those men were my pastors when I, when I served with them. And, um, and when I listened, you know what I listened for? God, what are you saying to me? Father, what are you saying to me? And I hear the man, and I know who he is, and I know his good points and his bad points, but I know that you are speaking to me because you have called him, and he's sharing your word. What are you saying to me? And let me stop there. Uh, we've got just a, a couple minutes, and I meant to allow more time for it. But before I close us in prayer tonight, let me ask, ask you if you have questions about what we've discussed and the different kinds of church government that that you'll find in, even in Cross County. You'll find all three of those in Cross County. Um, or, 
or the significance of what the New Testament says about church leadership? Anybody? I covered it all, huh? All right, now if 20 of you line up to talk to me afterwards. All, all asking the same question. Yes, Ms. Lois. Okay, well, first of all, a lot of them would, would be uncomfortable be, with being called a board. Am I, am I right about that, guys? Um, but our deacons, of course, it's another Bible study. But my personal conviction is that deacons are, are one of the clear officers of the church. Um, in the New Testament, the job description for deacons is a lot more fuzzy than it is for elders, overseers, and pastors because there are all kinds of instructions given to them. But the deacons, we have to kind of read between the lines. I personally believe that Acts chapter 6 is a description of the first group of men that could properly be called deacons in the New Testament church, and they were in the church in Jerusalem. And if you all remember that story, the apostles and the elders were responsible for teaching the word and for prayer, uh, staying close to the head of the church and recognizing what his direction was. A problem grew up in the church that was causing division. Uh, one group of widows felt shortchanged in the daily distribution of social uh, support because when they left the synagogue, they left all their financial aid behind. They didn't have Social Security like they do today. And so they received their financial support, food and so forth, from the synagogue. Well, when they came to Christ, they lost all of that. And the church took the synagogue's place. And one group of women felt like they were not getting what the other group was getting. And there were, there were ethnic differences between them. Some of them were Hebrew Jewish people. Others were Greek-speaking Jewish people. And, and there was this disagreement. The way they resolved it is they asked the church to select a group of men who were full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. And those men, those seven men, were called to, in a practical way, by doing service, were called to help keep the church whole and healthy and not from division, not suffering from division. So my personal opinion is, as a principle, is that a deacon's primary assignment is to help keep the church of Jesus Christ healthy and whole. That when something is threatening to divide the church, that they are the, they are the stormtroopers who go in and say, hey, how can we resolve this? How can we fix this? How can we make this right? And uh, I, there's a thousand different ways deacons can serve. All of our deacons are serving already somewhere in the life of the church. They're teachers or they're, they serve on committees or something like that. They serve already or they wouldn't be deacons. Um, so our, right now our men have a tremendous role in the area of prayer, uh, tremendous uh, responsibility or really the way they encourage me and the rest of the staff through their prayers and through their encouragement, through their support. And um, they minister to widows in our church. They minister to, um, to those in need. They, they're really good about uh, visiting. Um, we had a funeral this afternoon. I know that there were deacons probably involved with that. So they do a lot of practical uh, caring things as well in our church. It varies from church to church. Um, 
in our church, I most definitely, when we have a major decision, I discuss it with our deacon. Um, now, a major decision is where we're going we're gonna to change the way we do Sunday school like we did two years ago or, um, you know, something like that. I mean, that, those are major decisions. Um, and so, yes, they are involved. They're a sounding board uh, in the sense of giving feedback. Uh, I count on them to tell me the truth, and, uh, and I believe that they do. So. Now, in some churches, uh, especially in smaller membership churches where the pastor may turn over frequently, where they get a different pastor often, uh, it's not uncommon for the deacons to be the primary church leaders because by default there's nobody else to lead, nobody else to care for the church. And so that happens. It varies from church to church. Anybody else? Let me pray for us. We'll be dismissed. Our Father and our God, we thank you for what we read this morning, that you are the great shepherd and the overseer of our souls. We thank you, Almighty God, that you have not left your church in any way to be alone or to fend for themselves. You have given us your Holy Spirit who lives in the heart of every Christian here. Lord, as we work together, as we serve together, we know that we receive our life, we receive direction from you as the head of the church. You are the one who leads us. You are the one that we trust. You are the one in, in whom our hope rests. Father, as we go from this place, I, I pray that our hearts will be stirred to think carefully, long, and seriously about how this church is led. I pray, Almighty God, that you would enable us to treat decisions uh, increasingly as your decisions and that we would be careful to hear one another and work together to capture your heart and to bless you by hearing your heart and fulfilling your direction for our church father i pray for those who who are struggling tonight and who need encouragement and i pray almighty god that they would find that in you and they would find that in your people Father, as we go from this place, we, we go with some sense that there's a whole week ahead of us, and you know that we know that you're going to bring many people across our path who need our ministry, and that you have called us to serve them, to love them, to tell them the truth about Jesus. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would fill every person here tonight, every Christian, and that you would cause us to be very sensitive and very alert to people who are hurting around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks.